It's Father's Day this week. Don't forget Father's Day. And this week, Ivanka Trump gave her father a wonderful gift, a path back to rational thinking, a path back to sanity. Of course, I don't know if he really appreciated it. I'm Richard Bay, and this is Richard Bay Talk, along with my producer, Albert. There he is. Good to see you, Albert. And you. Okay. It's Father's Day, and um, and that's coming up this week. And, uh, you know, I've, I've shown you enough video of my father, and I used to have my father on the radio show doing movie reviews. Uh, so I, I won't bore you by going through all that again. But at the end of this podcast, I have a very special interview with Jackie Mason, where he talks about his father. It's not necessarily a heartwarming story, but at the end of it, it made me appreciate my father a lot more, and maybe it'll make you appreciate your father. Here's a bit of it. A very dramatic incident you relate about one night where your father became violent with you because he felt that you were wasting your life and not right. pursuing something that was worthwhile. Right, right. What happened on that night? My father was, a, that was one of the most, probably the most dramatic moment in my relationship with my father. That was the most uh, overwhelming, overpowering ordeal that I ever went through in my whole life in terms of my relationship with him. Because How old were you then? I was like about uh, 11, 12 years old. All right. Uh, he's not only serious in the interview. Uh, you'll see he's, he's absolutely so very funny. And Jackie passed away over the last year and we became very, very good friends after, uh, after that particular interview. But um, that was on television. And this week, the first of the January 6th committee hearings was on television. 20 million viewers it was the biggest audience for a television show ever in history. Larger than anything, the JFK assassination. It was larger than the presidential debates, period. The biggest audience. No, I'm, <laughs> of course, it was Sean Spicer who said Trump had the biggest um, uh, inauguration crowd, period. And... Even when people could see aerial pictures of Trump's inaugural crowd and Obama's inaugural crowd, people still insisted, oh, Trump's was bigger. It was bigger. Well, the fact is that uh, the Benghazi hearing, when Hillary Clinton sat there for all those hours, um, that got four million viewers. And it was on multiple channels. And this got 20 million. The question that you saw across the punditry on television after the hearing, despite the interest of 20 million viewers, was, is this going to change anybody's mind? Will this really make a difference? Is there anything that can make a difference? According to a Reuters opinion poll, more than half of Republicans believe that it was left-wing protesters who led the Capitol riot and they were there trying to make Trump look bad. Now, if more than half of Republicans actually believe that without any evidence, from the 
fever swamps of their imagination and I guess internet QAnon conspiracies. If over half of Republicans believe that, could you, is there any way you could change their minds? Well, Michael Smirkanish is a um, guy who has a show on CNN. And I think, I think he's one of the best. It, he and Fareed Zakari are the best shows that they carry, but Michael really understands television more. And uh, as I said, we were friends in Philadelphia. And in the very beginning, he called me for advice when he was trying to break into radio. And on his show, he asked the question, would anything change people's minds? And he answered the question. He asked his audience, he, well, he proposed first that if Mike Pence actually appeared before the committee and testified about what he went through and what he had to do and what the pressures that were put upon him, that that would actually change people's minds. And he, he proposed that idea to his viewers and had them call in in a poll that he revealed at the end of the show. And these are the poll results that he got. Would testimony from former Vice President Mike Pence be a January 6th investigation game changer? 76% of people said yes, 24% said no. And um, actually, he said at the end of the show, uh, they had way over 25,000 votes during uh, the hour-long broadcast. So uh, I disagree. I, I don't think if Mike Pence came in there and said, you know, Trump punched me and beat me and yelled at me and and put handcuffs on me and brainwashed me and I still resisted. I don't think that would make a difference in in the minds of many of these people. Uh, I go on conservative sites and I watch Fox News and I watched some of it uh, during the investigation, which uh, on television, which I was recording. And I don't think anything can change some of these people mind, people's minds. They don't need a debate partner. They don't need an education. They need a deprogrammer. Now, of course, there are some people who change their minds. One of them was this guy, Mr. McCarthy. I've had it with this guy. What he did is unacceptable. Nobody can defend that and nobody should defend that. That's a January 10th call, four days after what happened on January 6th. I've had it with this guy. Nobody should defend that. Well, <laughs> he flipped. He changed his mind. He went to Mar-a-Lago and it changed his mind. Lindsey Graham, his mind changed after a group of Trump supporters confronted him at an airport as he was rushing to a plane and shouted at him, traitor, traitor, you've let us down. He changed his mind. So yeah, on that side, they have changed their minds quite a bit. But the others, and I think they've changed their minds because they know that Trump supporters are incapable of changing their minds. Somebody came up with the perfect, I think, description of these Republicans. They call them banana Republicans. Because in a, in a banana republic, there is in many instances a coup that changes the government, government rather than a legitimate election.
Now, one thing that would, I, it's not going to happen, but it would be interesting. What if Trump offered to speak in front of this committee? What if he came in and said, I'm going to tell my side of the story. You want facts? I'll, I'll reach into the furthest lizard portions of my brain and give you facts. What if he came in and defended himself? Uh, that would be interesting. Of course, the definition of rationality is based on or in accordance with reason or logic. And that is not for a great part of this country, not the majority, but a significant part. It is not something that they do or I think are even capable of. Now, in my experience of being on some conservative or Trump-supporting websites, I've seen a host of deflections, obfuscations, and excuses for January 6th. One of them is, we have too many problems. Look at inflation. Look at the price of gasoline. Look at the price of food and what we're going through. And they want to have a committee to investigate January 6th? People forget. During the Watergate hearings in 1974, what do you think inflation was? It was 11.4%. My God, they would have welcomed 8% unemployment, uh, 8% uh, inflation. What do you think the gas situation was in 1974 while the Watergate hearings and, and, um, and Sam Irvin and People were running to their TV sets to watch the testimony of John Dean. What do you think the gas situation was? I was alive then. And we had the Arab oil embargo. You had to get on a line in order to get to the pump. And sometimes those lines were 45 minutes or an hour or even longer the trail of cars out of gas stations extended all the way into the street. In fact, they had to have police there to make sure that they weren't go uh, blocking uh, traffic. So that was 1974, the Watergate hearings. And then the other thing they try to do is make this uh, Ashley Babbitt, who lost her life after smashing a window, trying to call through, with a mob of people behind her talking about murdering Mike Pence and hunting down Nancy Pelosi. And after hearing of officers down and blood on the steps of the Capitol and people being beaten with flagpoles and bear sprayed into their face, one of them actually had a heart attack on the spot. An officer fired his gun. Lieutenant Michael Byrd fired his gun and killed Ashley Babbitt. So she's the great martyr of January 6th. He didn't want to shoot her. Along with other officers, he had barricaded the door to this entrance because it led right to the House of Representatives where people forget. You've seen the pictures, I'm sure. I don't have to show you another picture. There were guys with guns pointed at the door 
I don't know what happened to them when they finally got to the house, but those guys were inside the Capitol House chambers while members of the House were hiding under their tables and under their seats and crouching in fear. They had guns pointed at that door. And Michael Byrd was investigated. The Capitol Police Department said the actions of the officer in this case potentially saved members and staff from serious injury and possible death from a large crowd of rioters. He himself, in a television interview, said, I, I, I tried to wait as long as I could. But after what you've heard on your police radio about what's going on outside and officers down and people being beaten and bear sprayed, and there's, I don't know, a hundred people out there screaming for Mike Pence and his death and Nancy Pelosi to hunt her down for God knows what. I, I think he took the proper action. But that's only one of the complaints of victimization you hear about what happened on January 6th. Others are complaining, oh, these poor guys who sprayed bear spray, who beat people unconscious, who put Capitol Police officers in the hospital, who gave one a heart attack, one who was on the floor. Um, these poor people, they've been arrested and now they are victims. Take a look at this clip. Grade six defendants are being treated differently on a whole nother level. They have been beaten by the guards. They are called white supremacists. If you're a Republican, you can't even lie to Congress or lie to an FBI agent. They're going to put you in the D.C. jail and terrorize and torture you. And then they put me in handcuffs. They bring me here. They put me in leg irons. They stick me in a cell. What they did to me today violated the Constitution. Oh, my God. Poor Peter Navarro. And yeah, oh, you can't even lie to the FBI if you're a Republican. Well, yeah. <laughs> you can't lie to them if you're a member of any party. It's it's a law. I mean, some of this is so freaking ridiculous. And in terms of victimization, take a look at this picture. Do you recognize this woman? Mm. Well, look at that. She has leg shackles on. She has handcuffs. She's in an orange jumpsuit. She must be a prisoner. And yes, she was. Ken Starr and later Brett Kavanaugh, who's now on the Supreme Court, Rod Rosenstein, um, had an investigation of something called Whitewater. It eventually evolved into the Monica Lewinsky uh, scandal that led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. But it began with something called Whitewater. And they wanted this woman, her name is Susan McDougall, if you remember. 
They wanted her to testify against Bill Clinton. And she refused to do so. She gave her name, her address, and she refused to testify against the president. Well, what happened to her? She spent 18 months in prison. She was put in shackles and handcuffs. 18 months in prison for contempt of court. She was shuffled all around the country to different prisons so she could never get acclimated. And poor Peter Navarro, what did he spend? Ten minutes? She spent 18 months. Now, another thing that uh, uh, Trump followers try to do to deflect from the January 6th insurrection is, what about the riots? What about the George Floyd riots? What about happened there? Well, you know, first of all, it's a different topic. Number two, um, Biden denounced the violence that took place after George Floyd peaceful protests. And he did it multiple times, multiple times. I mean, I could run it down for you, but uh, you could probably Google it for yourself. Meanwhile, Biden denounces the violence and Trump just a few days ago said January 6th that this protest was one of the greatest moments in American history. Greatest movements, I think he said, in American history. Trump celebrated them. Trump watched them, uh, you know, uh, on his television, you know, and did nothing, which brings me to something else. When I flipped over to um, Sean Hannity during the hearings, he was going on and on and on trying to blame all this on Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi did not call out the National Guard. First of all, Nancy Pelosi cannot call out the National Guard. The president can call out the National Guard. The Secretary of Defense can call out the National Guard as the presidential representative. But Nancy, so ridiculous. And what has turned out to be the fact, at least according to the secretary, um, I'm sorry, according to Mark Milley, is that Mike Pence did call him and said, called him three times and explicitly said, get me the National Guard. This has got to stop. Get the National Guard. Call the National Guard up. Meanwhile, Trump was sitting on his big fat ass watching television. And whether he actually said that Mike Pence deserved to be hanged or not, that's an anonymous allegation. So take it with a grain of salt. But he did nothing for hours and hours while he sat in front of the TV enjoying what was happening on January 6th. There's never been a report 
that he had any consternation or uh, criticism of what was going on. But Mike Pence, he was calling uh, General Milley and saying, get me the National Guard, get me the National Guard. Doesn't keep Sean Hannity from on Fox News saying, oh, Trump wanted the National Guard. He mentioned it once a couple of days before and nobody took him up on it. Um, well, Trump didn't call Trump didn't call out the National Guard. If he wanted the National Guard, he has the ultimate authority to call out the National Guard. He could have done it. He didn't. He could have done it before. He could have done it that day. And um, those are the kinds of excuses that you'll hear on Fox News and on conservative websites. Now something else happened this week and everybody's cheering and exalting the bipartisanship that created a framework for new gun safety legislation. We don't even know exactly what's going to be in it. But we have a fair idea that this federal legislation will not even be as good as the legislation that they have in Florida, which was signed into law by Senator Rick Scott when he was governor. Here in Florida, we have a three-day waiting period. Uh, we have 20, age 21 to buy an AR-15. We have red flag laws. And this legislation will not even be as detailed as what we have in Florida from a Republican governor and two houses of Republican legislation. Why, why couldn't they just use Florida's plan? So, you know, everybody's just, it's so remarkable that any bi anything bipartisan came out of uh, this Congress that people are elated. Well, I'm not elated by what happened, and I do believe that, um, you know, legislation is the art of compromise, and I, and I also believe that Democrats should have tried to protect, on a federal level, the ability to access a, a termination of pregnancy in your first term, rather than, you know shooting for the home run out of the stadium, you know, take a single. And at 95% of um, abortions occur in the first trimester anyway. So, you know, and some things you can compromise. And I was thinking about this bipartisanship. <sighs> what if we had a bipartisan slate running in the next election or what if or what if we just had a non-trumpist slate suppose we had romney and cheney as vice president and romney as president and adam kinzinger as vice president or what if we had romney and one of the more centrist democrats um, Abigail Spamberger, 
as his vice president or Max Rose as his vice president. I have to tell you, I'm not saying that I would, but I'd have to seriously consider that kind of ticket over Joe Biden, who I think is too old, and Kamala Harris, who's been a major disappointment. Now, you'll probably, some of you are going to disagree with me, but well, I'm not saying that I would. And when it was Romney versus Obama, my choice was clear. But if it was Romney and Abigail Spamberger or Romney and Liz Cheney, I don't agree with either of their policies, but I think they are two people of integrity and capability. So I'd seriously have to consider that. All right, now we get to Jackie Mason. Uh, when I was 13, I had my bar mitzvah at a place called Ben Maxix in Brooklyn. And the opening act was Bernadette Castro, you know, the, from the Castro Convertible Company. Maybe if you're in New York, you're the only ones who will know about this. But, you know, they had this, the theme song of her pulling out the convertible bed. Who was the first to conquer space? It's incontrovertible that the one to conquer living space is the Castro Convertible. Who conquers space? space with fine design who saves you money all the time who's tops in the convertible line castro convertible well bernadette castro went on from this commercial television success to become a cabaret singer and she was the opening act for my bar mitzvah reception at this nightclub in brooklyn and who is the headliner jackie mason Jackie Mason, years later, when I told him he was at my bar mitzvah reception, he, he was flabbergasted. And guess what? Two weeks after that was when he had the notorious incident on Ed Sullivan, where he says not, but Ed Sullivan thought he flipped him the bird and Jackie's career went in the trash can for a decade. So years later, Jackie Mason wrote a book and he was on every talk show. He was on, you know, Today and Good Morning America and appearing on syndicated talk shows. And I kept calling and calling. And saying, Jackie was out. Can I get him on my show? Can I get him on people that are talking? They go, he's got to go to New Jersey. Why? He's got to go through the tunnel to New Jersey. He's getting all these national shows. Why should he be on your Richard Bay people are talking show? And I kept at it, and I kept at it, and I begged his manager, Jill, who also became a friend later on. And eventually Jackie showed up, and we had just a wonderful interview. Now, you'll notice in this clip that I'm particularly effusive in introducing him, and the reason that I am where I was is that... <laughs> I wanted Jackie and I wanted his manager to appreciate that they were on a show where the host knew what he was doing and would treat Jackie with a certain kind of respect and reverence. So in this clip, Jackie's very, very funny, as he always is. And at one point, though, he talks about his life. And he talks about his father. 
at a traumatic incident he endured with his father. For Father's Day, it's not a clip of celebration. But after I watched it, I was even more grateful for the great dad that I had. Take a look. They say behind every comedian, there is a life of tragedy or very serious issues. They say, I guess our impression of Pagliacci, the clown who is crying on the inside while he makes you laugh on the outside. Perhaps that is a cliche, but it does have some truth. My next guest is one of my favorite people and one of our favorite comedians. He's a national treasure, and his comedy does more than just make you laugh. It makes you think. It touches you in your heart. It touches you in your mind. But this morning, we're going to be talking about the events and the people who helped create the comedy of Jackie Mason. He's written a new book called Jackie Oi, not Jackie O, Jackie Oi, Jackie Mason from birth to rebirth. And it's the story of a comedian's survival and his success. Please welcome a national treasure to People Are Talking, Jackie Mason. So how was I? Did I say it just the way you wrote it? <laughs> How do you do? Thank you, thank you. God bless you. Do you want to sit or stand? Thank you. I was just listening yeah. to this whole introduction. It's a very, yeah. very touching introduction. I thought there was going to be somebody else come out here. <laughs> what do you think about I that I couldn't wait to though? hear what this guy is going to be. Do you have to suffer to was, be funny? I was so, I'll be honest with you. I really think you don't have to suffer to be funny. I don't think suffering helps you to be funny. I, you know, a lot of people say that it, it helps to be miserable in order to enjoy happiness. It helps to go through all kinds of misery in order to become successful or to appreciate success. You can't appreciate it unless you suffer. Stupid. Somebody gave you $10 million, you say, first I want to suffer before I take it. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be glad to see it. You will say, let me suffer first so I'll appreciate it. <laughs> were you happier, though, when you were struggling, when you went through those years of struggle, or now that you're a success and everybody goes, Jackie, we love you, and they come up and they... I, I've heard a lot of times about people who can't handle success, and so when they become successful, they become miserable from success, and they can't handle it, they fall apart, they want to jump out of windows, commit suicide. I don't know of a person like this. <laughs> I don't know what the reason for it is. I can't understand why happiness creates misery and money creates hate. And, and tremendous success creates disturbances. I don't know why. Or you give a person a better home to live in and a better mattress, and you give him a girlfriend for nothing, and all of a sudden he tells you how miserable he is because he's so happy. I don't know why. But didn't you have more time to spend on your life when, you know, to, to well, what you could I sleep late? I more time, but the time was spent in deprivation and misery and uh, feeling uh, left out, uh, going nowhere, accomplishing nothing. I don't see anything so fantastic about it. I never understood why people can't appreciate success. You should thank God that uh, you could become successful and you should uh, revel in it and enjoy it and see what you could do to help other people because of it and enjoy life and help other people live better because there's, everything is on your side and how could you resent success if that's what you fight for all your life? People fight to become successful, to become a star. And as soon as they become a star, they can't get over what a big star they are, they start hiding from people. <laughs> and you say to yourself, why is this guy hiding? He was fighting for attention. If he, if he wanted to avoid attention, why didn't he become a plumber? You hang around a, <laughs> hang around, hang around a toilet and nobody will bother you. You want to sit down or you want to sit? You know, uh... 
Have a seat. <laughs> but one of the things in your life is that, is that in your family, and especially your father, opposed your move into show business. Your father wanted you to be a rabbi? He wanted you to be... My father wanted me to be a rabbi because I come from a very, very long lineage of rabbis. Throughout the history of the background of my family tree, everybody was a rabbi if you go back 10,000 years. You can't find anybody that was not a rabbi. What happened to you? Everybody's wife became a rabbi, their children became <laughs> rabbis. If, if a cat walked in, they started to study how to be a rabbi. <laughs> they couldn't avoid being a rabbi. If you were alive, you had to be a rabbi. <laughs> and if you turned it down, you were considered like a Nazi. What are you doing not being a rabbi? It was impossible to live in my family without being a rabbi. So I knew that that was... To my father, the only way to live, and it was the holiest thing on the earth to him. And I had three brothers before me who all became rabbis. It's all in the book. So then, as the fourth son, my father waited for me to become a rabbi. I couldn't look at my father and tell him I would not be a rabbi. I knew it would shatter his whole life. If that's all you live for, and you think it's holy, and you think there's no other way to live, it's like a king in England waiting for the son to take over the kingdom. And instead, he says, eh, I'd rather be in Philadelphia hanging around with a few brothers. <laughs> I, uh, and I was getting nauseous from this whole experience. <laughs> and I really, I really disliked it because I felt like a prisoner, or even though everybody else around my family was dedicated to it. I kept sneaking out of the house, running around with different kids uh, that, that were not religious and trying to see what else was going on every place else in the world. And as I was starting to have some fun, I was watching them uh, play pool in the pool room, and I would hang around the candy store, watch them uh, uh, arguing about communism, and then I'd go to the next corner and see if they're playing baseball. And I was beginning to enjoy the outside life. I was beginning to notice that outside of my house, you could have a lot of fun. This place, like a... <laughs> this place looked like a prison to me. I said. I said, this place is nothing compared to the rest of the world. Let me get, there's some way to get out of here. And uh, my father would periodically catch me running out I would pretend I was going to, uh, to a yeshiva to study, or I was going to school to, to, with books. I kept lying and maneuvering around my father because I didn't want to hurt him or, or, or bear the consequences of what might happen if he found out I wasn't that religious or that studious. I knew that it would either hurt him or he would wipe me out, one or the other. And then one day I was home and my father said to me, it's time to study. And I, was, I had it up to here, I couldn't take it anymore. I said to myself, this is choking me to death here. I felt like... Uh, this man is a warden. I said, this is a father. It looked like a prison. So I said to myself, I bet it. I just couldn't control myself and I had a terrific outburst. As a 12-year-old as a kid, I said to my father, look, this is not for me. And uh, maybe it's for you and it's for the rest of the family. It's for everybody but me. I don't need this. I can't take it. And I was choking and screaming and I said, that's it. And my father gave me a shot. <laughs> <laughs> like you never saw in your life. And I said, that's not a bad punch, this man is no... <laughs> but I thought that was the end of it. That was just the beginning. After that, he started belting me and hitting me over and over again a hundred times. Now, you know what it is when a, a healthy adult is belting a 12-year-old kid from pillar to post all over the room. I said to myself, is this an insane asylum? <laughs> this man was a rabbi only a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> what did your father say to you while he was beating you? He said, you'll never get away with this. You'll never be anything but a rabbi. And no matter which way you turn, I'll never accept this. And you'll, 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 son, he was calling me names I never heard from a rabbi before. <laughs> and, uh, and he was, uh, he was, became turbulent and violent and completely out of control because it suddenly hit him that the possibility 
of a revolution here, that he might have one son that might actually not become a rabbi. This is like the jazz singer, the same sort of thing. He, he literally, went... he literally went berserk. I think if my father was out of control at that time, to such an extent that he, if he had a gun, he would have shot me right away. I was lucky that there was a gun control law in that neighborhood. <laughs> but he would have done anything to wipe me out. But this didn't and, stop you. And didn't just the opposite. It had. Isn't that amazing? That's a, that's a great lesson to parents who think that they should get violent with a kid to make him do what they please. That uh, because even when you're two, if you are so emotionally determined to, to do something else, all the parents in the world and all the sticks and stones is not going to stop you if you have an emotional problem about it and if you can't really accept it. And they have to find ways to influence a child without that kind of violence because the only thing that did is turn me around upside down in the opposite direction. From that minute on, I knew I'd never be a rabbi. I, I, similar, my, my father didn't beat me, but my father would always say, you can't live like this, you can't be an actor, get a serious man's job, you know, and, and obviously he was right, right? <laughs> well, I think so far you were a big mistake. <laughs> All right. So that did make me appreciate my own dad and his support as I took a different career path than the one that uh, he would have wished. Um, I became really good friends with Jackie after that show. He loved the interview and we lived just a block apart from each other on 57th Street in Manhattan. So we'd often run into each other on the street and he'd drag me along with him to the delis. We went to Carnegie Deli, Stage Deli, Ben Ash Deli, uh, the deli in Midtown that's, I forget the name of it, but it's inside of some hotel. And uh, the reason we went to so many different delis is that it, Jackie got thrown out of each one because he expected to be comped. And he was comped for a long time in many of these delis. But after a while, they said, forget it. We can't afford to do this anymore. And when I ran into Jackie on the streets, uh, he would always call me, it's the announcer. It's the announcer. Oh, why aren't you working? You're such a good announcer. Um, and um, he's gone. But we remember him. And somebody said, uh, well, you're not truly dead until the last person who remembers you in their memories is also gone. And I was thinking that this week, I was in the gym, I was lifting a weight, and my father's voice was in my head. My father had all these little maxims of advice. And one of them was, lift with your legs, not with your back. So when I reached down to lift up the weights, I said, oh yeah, lift with my legs, not with my back. And then Kyle said to me this week, uh, week he said, you know what? Remember what your father said? Troubles should roll off your back the way water rolls off the back of a duck. So not only do I keep my father in my memory, so does Kyle, and I, I hope you will this week during Father's Day. And um, I'll hope you, I hope you keep this podcast <laughs> alive as well by sharing it with your friends, by listening to the audio version of the podcast on Google and Spotify and Apple Podcast. And please subscribe. This way you'll never miss a show any week. And if you pass it on to your friends, what a great gift idea. Because I think here you will learn things that you probably won't hear in a lot of other places. 
and you'll be entertained. Once again, thank you for joining me. And all my best. Take care.